Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. People have said about myself that I am a pessimist. Well, if you believe in God, you must be, you must be an optimist, mustn't one? in any real and fundamental sense. And just because one is not Jay June about a particular civilization, Western civilization, just because one is not Jay June about the results of the natural science and the political science, that is the deep science in the sense of knowledge and thought, just because one is not optimistic about those doesn't mean, you know, civilizations have come and gone, have they not? Tonight we present the second program in our three-part intellectual biography of George Grant. Philosophical ideas, uh, as you can easily see in his books, have a dramatic power as forces in history. And uh, this much of the Hegelianism, or the Hegelian spirit, remains in George's writing, that ideas uh, do have the status of primordial historical actors. Tonight's program traces the intellectual career of George Grant, from his first job as a teacher of philosophy at Dalhousie University to his resignation from McMaster University in 1980. Perhaps the Western experiment, that is the experiment that's really gone on since the 17th century, in both natural science and political science, has been a mistake. You know, now that was the great central thought that I have tried to think. Because it's very hard to think. You know, we're all being brought up, you know, within the Western experiment as supremely good and something that has to be taken out to the whole of the world. And this doubt of the Western experience has certainly been the central idea of my thought. During the Second War, Grant's world had been shaken by his experiences during the bombing of London. But in the 1950s, he still found himself able to accept the great Western faith in progress. Then came his encounter with the writings of the German-American philosopher Leo Strauss, in the early 1960s. Strauss led Grant to reevaluate modern political philosophy and to conclude that the political philosophy of the ancient world was actually superior to it. From then on, in books like Technology and Empire, Time as History, and English-Speaking Justice, Grant would explore the contradictions of being a modern person while at the same time trying to think outside modern assumptions. He would also try to live his philosophy, which brought him into conflict with the technocratic spirit of the contemporary university, and eventually led to his resignation from McMaster, only five years before he would have retired. David Cayley is the author and narrator of tonight's program on George Grant. The incidental music was chosen from Mozart, a composer of whom Grant is passionately fond. The scene opens in Halifax in the 1950s.
we were having lots of children then, you know, and was seeing, and I was seeing who ran Dalhousie, you know, how it was run, what it represented in Nova Scotian life, the relation of Nova Scotian life to Toronto and Ottawa life. That was sort of living. At the same time, what was basically happening to me was thinking about what had been going on in Western Europe. And above all, I would say, how Western Europe was dominated by the idea of history. And history was most consummately thought in a modern way by Hegel, the greatest, most wonderful thinker of the doctrine of progress. In 1947, George Grant returned to Canada from Oxford, where he had been studying philosophy and theology. The University of Toronto had offered him a job and then withdrawn the offer on the grounds of Grant's reputation as a pacifist and a socialist. He went to Halifax, to the philosophy department at Dalhousie University, and there he was introduced by colleague James Dowell to the German philosopher Hegel and to Hegel's compelling description of history as progress. This essentially turned, it seems to me, on the idea which was basic to the French Revolution, which was the Great Revolution, that with modern science you could produce a worldwide society of free and equal human beings, and that this is what history was about. This was the basis, it seems to me, of the doctrine of progress. And that has been the great Western idea. It's been the idea, I mean, the West conquered the rest of the world, not only by its science, but by this immense idea. I mean, the great distinction of the ancient world was between nature and convention. The great distinction of the modern world has been between nature and history. And history has been a, you know, everybody talks about it, do they not? They're always making their claim to be doing something in the course of history and all this kind of thing. Now, you know, one's always in life a series of sort of things battling against each other inside one. Do you know what I mean? All the time, I'm sure that's true of all of us. But what I've said previously about the last war and the sinking feeling it gave me about Western history. Still, after the war, I came to believe that this idea of progress working itself out in the world was something one could believe. What struck me about him, and what strikes me to this day, is very strange when you uh, think of George's general reputation as a man who lives in the past. Louis Greenspan, later a colleague of Grant's at McMaster, was a student at Dalhousie in the 1950s. What struck me about his mind then, as today, was how modern he is. George was able to see the world through the eyes of Freud, Marx, at that time Jean-Paul Sartre and others, with a total clarity, and I don't think he's ever lost that. I just cite as one well-known example his, his reading of Nietzsche in uh, Time as History. Now, what attracted me at that time 
was that he combined this with a strong religious uh, faith. This was absolutely spectacular. Here was a man who was totally modern and totally traditional. At times, I see it, uh, George's uh, writing almost as a conflict or a dialogue between one element and the other. Grant's ability to combine the traditional and the modern was partly shaped by a university environment in which philosophy still seemed to be at the center of things. Grant's students from those days recall a world in which the arts curriculum of the university was a unified whole, and the university was intimately a part of the wider public world. There was at Dalhousie, as I saw it, an integrated world, the spillover of the practical world into, the, uh, into our seminars was quite uh, pronounced. Many of George's close friends were very important uh, political figures in uh, Nova Scotia, as well as important uh, religious figures and so on. So there was this uh, spillover of the practical world and the uh, uh, philosophy department. It was a kind of Platonic academy. George, as I knew him then, of course, he taught Plato's Republic. And the figure of Plato, uh, well, you'll pardon the expression, held him, <laughs> you know, uh, very deeply because of Plato's turning away from political life into uh, philosophy and turning back to politics into philosophy. George did see it, as he often said, as a, as a sort of image of, uh, you know, of what the philosophical life was. I was very poor at this stage, with five children and a sixth one coming. Academic salaries were very poor in these days. I was very scared about being able to cope with my responsibilities to my children. Then, because the Russians put up Sputnik in the skies, academic salaries soared, you know, all that worry disappeared. But economic worry is for has been very central in my life since I got married. Right. Because, you you know, you have responsibilities to children. You have to see that you have enough to eat and a place to live and get them to get educated to some extent. Do you see what I mean? I mean, I just saw the end of the Depression. Though I was sort of cushioned from the Depression by my dad having a good school teacher's job, that always remained with me. And when I found myself suddenly, and I thought professors were really something, I suddenly found myself earning $3,000 a year with five children. You know, so, you know, I, I had to get going. <laughs> One of the ways in which Grant got going was by contributing to the CBC. He wrote radio talks on Jean-Paul Sartre and Carl Jung for a series called Architects of Modern Thought, appeared on Nathan Cohen's program, Fighting Words, and finally, in 1958, produced the work which would sum up this entire period. University of the Air. It is with considerable pleasure that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation presents the first series of lectures in this new program. Tonight's broadcast is the first in a series of eight under the general title, Philosophy in the Mass Age, to be delivered by Dr. George Grant of Dalhousie University, Halifax. Now head of the Department of Philosophy, Dr. Grant was the Rhodes Scholar for... In Philosophy in the Mass Ontario, Age, you do have this hope. You speak of the dawn of a new age of reason, yes, yes. and that seems to be partly founded on your experience with the young and with 
uh, the freedom you see them as having in relation to tradition. So I'm interested in the sources of, of hope that you felt at that time, that you could use a phrase like the dawn of a new age of reason. You know, I don't mean to sound very sort of academic, but the sources of the hope, when you read philosophy in any real sense, you're asking if it's true or false. And I thought I had seen in the philosophy of Hegel that would, could take all that was great into the past and reshape it as progress and that young people, I was then teaching extremely hard. There were a lot of very fine young people. And I saw a kind of dawning. Now, in, in some sense, you know, there has been great dawnings in North America at certain points. I mean, I think the whole protest against the Vietnam War was a great dawning. This was, of course, long before the Vietnam War, but it was meeting. And it may have been no more than one's first teaching. You know, I was astounded by the excellence of the Nova Scotians I was teaching and the capacity for a sort of reason and thought in them sort of filled me with hope. But I, I think um, what was basic was coming to terms and seeing the greatness of this account of life as progress sort of carrying out and incarnating in the world what was present both in Christianity and in philosophy. And that's certainly what Hegel is saying. You do get caught up in what Hegel says. I mean, no one can emerge from reading Hegel without in some ways being uh, Hegelianized at least a little bit. This is Barry Cooper, a professor of political science at the University of Calgary and a friend of George Grant's. His recent book, The End of History, is about the philosophy of Hegel. One of George Grant's colleagues when he was at McMaster is a, a great uh, German uh, philosopher, Hans-Georg Gadamer, said in one of his books, he said, it's easy to get into the system, into Hegel's system, but once you're inside, it's almost impossible to get out. And that is, the, is I suppose, the, the temptation of becoming a Hegelian. Um, I mean, you have to abandon a lot of your common sense, but you can understand everything <clears throat> in terms of, of Hegel's system. The, the problem is, as uh, Grant uh, discovered, not that, that you can't understand the modern world, but that the modern world is not the whole of what there is to understand. So that while Hegel gives you a perfectly adequate account of modernity, there is something missing in modernity that Hegel can't give you an understanding of precisely because he is so modern. This was the position at which Grant had arrived by the early 1960s. Influenced by his reading of the German-American political philosopher Leo Strauss, Grant came to the conclusion that Hegel's system was incompatible with both Christianity and Greek philosophy. I don't see how anyone can be a Hegelian and a Christian at the same time. There are those who claim to be Christian Hegelians. Uh, I'm 
Some of them are even good friends of mine. But I don't see how they can do it. So far as I can see, Hegel's teaching, in the end, is atheist. And I think that George realized that and realized uh, that Hegel's atheism was clearly incompatible with his experience, George's own experience of, of uh, religion, of Christianity. And so he chucked Hegel. My hometown was Toronto. I wanted to be close to my mother and people like this, so I returned to Ontario and saw what had become of Toronto. At the same time, the contradiction about philosophy and the mass age was becoming clearer to me. and. I found that contradiction in political, philosophic terms wonderfully expressed by Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss was an immigrant from Germany with a great German philosophical education, and he brought that to the United States, and surely by, almost by accident, I started reading his works, and I began to see the contradictions in modern progressivist thought, which I had not previously understood. When I first came across Strauss, uh, it was in the 50s when I was a, uh, a student of political science. I was still an undergraduate. Uh, there was a behavioral revolution, so-called, in political science, which was going to change political science into a real science. And uh, Leo Strauss's was the... Uh, I don't know if, if the first, but the first powerful voice that was raised against this. Gad Horowitz, professor of political science at the University of Toronto. The thing about the attraction of the left to Grant is strange, but there was also a kind of attraction of all sorts of people to Strauss in those days that was equally strange. Because even though he was a Platonist, and even though his message was that uh, those who think about politics should go back to the Greeks and uh, study a fundamentally different way of thinking about things political, his critique of uh, the uh, attempt to uh, transform political thinking into a kind of value-free science was very impressive to people on the left who had their own reasons for opposing behaviorism and positivism. So Strauss was tremendously influential across the board in those days as an opponent of positivism and behaviorism in political thinking. But he was also a conservative, and the particular form that his conservatism took was back to Plato, back to the tradition, but, but particularly back to Plato, and back to the great classics of pre-liberal political philosophy in the West. What Strauss criticized in modern political philosophy was its rejection of the idea that there is an ultimate good by which everything else can be measured. Modern thinkers from Machiavelli on have made political morality relative. They have argued that the proper basis for politics is organized self-interest, not striving for the good. Strauss called it the lowering of the sights. You see it in these great thinkers, 
Hobbes and Locke. The end of life becomes comfortable self-preservation. Now, the end of life to the ancients, the height of life was openness to the whole, wasn't it? Openness to the whole, and in that openness to know the highest good, which is God. I mean, Strauss says somewhere that in the desire to overcome chance, which is in modern science and then modern political science, that this attempt to overcome chance was probably the reason why modern human beings have become oblivious of eternity. That the lowering of the sights that was done and thought to build a good world here on Earth because the higher sights were too difficult for man. The higher sights being openness and inquiry to the highest purposes of man. The overcoming of this led to a lack of desire for eternity, which is man's greatest need. This is what it seems to me came to me at this period, that perhaps the Western experiment, that is the experiment that's really gone on since the 17th century, in both natural science and political science, has been a mistake. You know, now that was the great central thought that I have tried to think because it's very hard to think. You know, we're all being brought up, you know, within the Western experiment as, as supremely good and something that has to be taken out to the whole of the world. And this doubt of the Western experience has certain, certainly been the central idea of my thought. This doubt is related to Strauss's idea that the overcoming of chance through modern science destroys the possibility of excellence. Chance, according to Strauss, describes what we can't understand or can't control. If we dominate it, then nothing can come to us that we haven't chosen, and thus we have no standard higher than our own wills. Excellence, Strauss argues, and Grant agrees, depends on an open encounter with the fate whose meaning is beyond our control. I always think of it that um, I went to college back in England after the war. I said, oh, God, I won't go to this party. Oh, I got to go to this party. I owe it to the guy. And I met my wife. <laughs> you know, do you see what I mean? I mean, if, if you don't think life is dominated by chance, and this has been the great event of my life, certainly, do you see what I mean? I mean, I don't think you can eliminate chance from life. But obviously, I don't, you know, if, if you've ever had a sick child, one is glad there is interference with chance. I certainly wouldn't be alive at this moment if, if there wasn't modern medicine, do you see, which is the supreme practical exemplar of interference with chance. And, and to, to talk as if... The, that interference with chance is not necessary is obvious nonsense. 
But the question how far it should go is another matter. Now, you've, I think you've just brought us back to the paradox of that we overcome chance for moral ends, and yet if we create a world in which we dominate chance, in a sense we destroy the possibility of excellence. Exactly. Is that what That's Strauss exactly. is saying? Yes, yes, quite. Can I ask you wh why he believes that that destroys the possibility of excellence? When a society is entirely directed to the overcoming of chance, it gives human beings the sense that they are the owners and masters of the world. Being that, they cannot know that they are essentially owned by something beyond them, something beyond the passing, which we do not measure and define, but by which we are measured and defined. George Grant learned a great deal from Leo Strauss. He largely accepted Strauss's account of what was wrong with modern political philosophy. But as Gad Horowitz points out, he never accepted the politics of Strauss and his followers. In the United States, it was possible to be, uh, not only possible, but quite common, for example, at the time of the Vietnam War, uh, to combine a, a Straussian orientation in political philosophy with a very strongly conservative orientation in terms of the day-to-day -day politics of the United States. Defense of Nixon, a defense of the war, a defense of all traditional American institutions, which are, of course, liberal institutions, against attack from either the right or the left. So that from their point of view, Grant's position was really sort of, I might almost say, crazy. Because uh, here is someone who shares with them the fundamentals of their uh, platonic and uh, deeply conservative point of view, who is at the same time condemning things like imperialism, capitalism, racism, poverty. A Straussian would have no interest whatsoever in, um, say, fighting for black equality in the United States. In fact, some of them have been prominent spokesmen for the old tradition of race relations in the United States. I think, for me, what it comes down to is um, any conservative who's incapable of criticizing capitalism fundamentally isn't a very good conservative. What distinguishes Grant from the Straussians, according to Gad Horowitz? is above all his Christianity. The emphasis on political equality which comes out of Christianity prevents Grant from simply retreating into elitism and forces him to face squarely the difficulties of contemporary conservatism. I would say that his saving grace is that he's able to experience as a contradiction what the, what the Straussians seem to be able to avoid. You know? I'm saying that in his thought, the contradiction between, on the one hand, utterly rejecting modernity, and on the other hand, being a modern, can be uh, expressed sort of consciously, uh, whereas the Straussians avoid it. They're somehow able to be both Platonists and advisors to the Defense Department, if you like. Right? Now, Grant could never be an advisor to, the defense, to any Defense Department, not even the Canadian Defense Department. I think what saves Grant in the end from the point of view uh, of a socialist is that his Christianity uh, prevents his conservatism from becoming uh, inhumane. Uh, the, the elitism of the Platonist 
which the American conservative Straussians tune up for their own purposes, is something that Grant cannot tune up without running into his Christian conscience. It's because he's Christian that he has the strength to, to, to maintain a sort of openness to the future, even if it's very minimal and very vague. It's what Ernst Bloch calls the principle of hope, uh, which comes out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I don't believe in retreats from the world, except retreat so that one can better live in the world. People have said a, a word that I really object to. I said about myself that I am a pessimist. Now, as you know, the words optimism and pessimism were invented by Leibniz, who said optimist means that it's the best of worlds, and pessimism means it's the worst of worlds. But if you believe in God, you must be an optimist, mustn't one? In any real and fundamental sense. And just because one is not J. June about a particular civilization, Western civilization, granting some of the great things that it has done. Just because one is not jejun about the results of the natural science and the political science, that is, science in the sense of knowledge and thought, just because one is not optimistic about those doesn't mean, you know, civilizations have come and gone, have they not? Uh, inconsequently, I don't really know. You know, when you get down to it, you know, I'm quite certain about speaking about God, but I'm not at all certain about speaking about whether God is a creator. I can believe in the eternity of the world very easily. You know, I just don't... Those kind of questions are, quite frankly, just beyond me. That's why I admire Strauss and these people who thought about the immediate teaching about politics of the great modern thinkers. Because some of these very ultimate questions, people who think that they can understand them are just deluding themselves. And certainly, I cannot understand them. I'm going slowly now to understand more about the statement, what it means to say that God is love. And this is connected to my understanding of the beautiful. The greatest and supreme figure in all philosophy, said the philosopher, is the being who knows that he knows not. You know, and people who don't know that they know not are very dangerous. George Grant left Dalhousie and the Maritimes in 1960. He returned to Toronto, where he had grown up. A job was waiting for him at brand new York University. But Grant was soon embroiled in a dispute with the university, which would lead to his resignation. I was the first person appointed to York of any academic. And I found out later, it was all a question of, in, from my perspective, that they were lying that they were under the control of the University of Toronto, and they were asking me to use a textbook that made fun of Christianity and of Platonism. So I just refused and resigned. 
but it meant I had mo I'd resigned. It meant I was in Toronto on a loose end for a year. Well, you've already spoken about your feelings of supporting your family and so on. That must have been an act of some courage to resign. Yes, well, I have a, a very courageous wife. What was the text? It was a text by a, a man who taught philosophy at the University of Toronto, Marcus Long, and it was a textbook that I simply refused to use. It perverted both Christianity and ancient philosophy. So that was that. Right. I then got a nice job at McMaster after a year. But in the meantime, I worked for the Encyclopedia Britannica. His break from York was personally courageous. It was a man with uh, uh, six children, you know, who was given a, a, a job of uh, teaching philosophy in a new, forward-looking university, and he quit because of the uh, demands that they were making on him. Louis Greenspan. When I first came to uh, McMaster, when George was now so important in uh, forming the department, the first year there, he was instrumental in hiring uh, myself, a Jew, as well uh, a woman, and a uh, Hindu scholar, which was quite uh, pathbreaking in those days, you know. And he would uh, he would uh, always talk about it as though he had dealt a crushing blow to the old Ontario educational system. He hired in one year a Hindu, a Jew, and a, and a woman. I always think of that when I read these accusations of George wanting to live in Brantford of the 19th century or something like that. Grant's situation at McMaster was very different than it had been at Dalhousie. Dalhousie, in the 1950s, remained somewhat old-fashioned. Psychology, for example, was still part of the philosophy department. At McMaster, modernity stared Grant in the face. We were in University Hall, one of the older buildings at McMaster, and we shared, we, the religion department, which George was very active in then forming, along with uh, the two or three people that were there, shared this building with a behavioral psychology department. You know, on the first floor were the altars, and the, down were the rat cages. So we would pass each other at the hall and glare, you know. So this was the first thing, you know, this uh, the psychology department was no longer part of the philosophy department. It was a very uh, militant behavioral uh, department. However, all of the members of this, uh, this I want to stress, all the members of the psychology department with whom we were in contact were very cultivated people. So the question of what was science, what was science doing, how were human beings being transformed were always fascinating to them. So there, uh, there uh, uh, was at McMaster a very close association between us, but in particular between George and many members of the psychology department. It was quite remarkable. There was a dialogue of two opposites, you might say. There you have a different kind of contradiction of two sides that couldn't absorb each other. But it, to this day, they ask me after George, the psychologist. So uh, this was the atmosphere at, uh, at McMaster, very different from Dalhousie. I thought it was very good. But I remember when the Secular City came out, <laughs> George, <laughs> we were sitting in George's office, look at the Secular City, you know, which was, he says, we're here with the psychology department. We've got to avoid bullshit. 
Ideas Network brings you the CBC Massey Lectures for 1969. Time as History by George Grant. I have brushed against the work of Nietzsche. George Grant's 1969 Massey Lectures came at the end of a decade which had confirmed Grant's misgivings about what he earlier called the Western experiment. He had a growing sense that modern technology was becoming an all-encompassing way of life which cut people off from the natural order of things. He had been appalled by the savagery of the American bombardment of Vietnam, and he had concluded from the fall of the Diefenbaker government in 1963 that Canada could not survive as a truly distinctive society in the modern world. So when he came to choose a subject for his lectures, he turned to the thinker who had expressed the fate of the modern world most completely. Nietzsche is the person, the first person who expresses modernity in its fullest. He says man is finally instinct and that reason, the definition of man as the rational animal is, is no longer a true definition. You know, that reason is a kind of little extra for calculation and for, you know, getting us comfortable and doing technology and things like that. Modern science, which was an enormous rational activity, destroyed the idea of man as the rational animal. Do you see, as the, as, as the animal who was fundamentally called to a destiny which was more than instinct. You know, one only has to, for a minute, think of Darwin. You know, he shows that uh, man can be well understood as everything in science can be understood as the product of necessity and chance. And the idea of good or purpose need not come into it. You know, modern science whether of the Newtonian kind or the Heisenbergian kind, explains everything without the idea of ultimate purpose, does it not? And if you can explain everything without the idea of ultimate purpose, then there is no ultimate purpose. This destruction of the idea of ultimate purpose leads straight to modern existentialism. And this is finally why Grant devotes so much care and attention to his reading of Nietzsche. He doesn't accept Nietzsche's teaching, but he does see within it the source of our most characteristic modern attitudes. It seems to me clearly that Nietzsche is saying there are no purposes in the world. What people meant by good was what people were, what anything was fitted for. A horse was good if it could run fast or pull, you know, do you see what I mean? Good was that. Now, this was the old language. Nietzsche no longer believes that there are these purposes. The old, you know, the purposes have been destroyed. He wants a new language to express how we decide what, how, what we should do. And therefore, he he substitutes for the language of good, what we are fitted for, the language of value. That's what he is doing, it seems to me. Nobody has ever been able to tell me, ever, what a value is. 
It seems to me an obscuring language for morality once the idea of purpose has been destroyed. And that's why it is so widespread in North America. Everybody talks about our values. And, of course, it's very funny that in North America, where it's all used by every onward and upward fellow everywhere, you know, politics, religion, everywhere, every clergyman talks of values, every, pol you know, everybody's talking about values night and day when they're trying to, ma to make sort of pious secular sermons. And yet it comes from the greatest enemy of all this, Nietzsche. The language of value is above all the language of Nietzsche. And it is the language, once you have eliminated, that there are purposes that intrinsically belong to beings. Now, once you have got rid of the universe of meaning, then everything becomes our making it, willing it, choosing it. Freedom becomes a kind of radical freedom, as it is in existentialism. You know, either or in the face of the meaningless of the world. Do you see what I mean? And I just think that's crazy. And I think it's just comic that the great and supreme originator of it is somebody the people who generally use it would would not think they liked. One of George Grant's great preoccupations has been with the subject of technology. To him, the term means not just our various ways of doing things. It conveys the very essence of modern life, the attempt to dominate and control both human and non-human nature. The breadth of this definition he owes in part to the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, a thinker Grant considers to be of the same stature with Nietzsche. When you think of the philosophic movement called existentialism, the rest are nowhere compared to Heidegger. You know, they're all little people. You know, Sartre is just a plagiarist of Heidegger. They've all just borrowed little bits from Heidegger. So I have no doubt at all that he is the great philosopher of the modern era. I mean, for myself, for instance, Nobody has spoken so wonderfully about what technology is as Heidegger. You know, Heidegger says, which I think is, is a marvelous phrase to express this, when people ask him about capitalism and communism. And he says, capitalism and communism are just predicates of the subject technology. And I think that is true. You know, they make a difference. There are different predicates. But the essential, I think Heidegger has seen that the essential event of Western civilization at its end is modern technology, which is now becoming worldwide. George Grant has never engaged in superficial denunciations of technology or denied its many benefits. But like Heidegger, he fears its power to destroy in us 
openness to things as they are, rather than as we choose them to be. Technology, for Grant, is a kind of addiction to our own wills, a power that drives us to do things just because it is possible to do them. When people are interested in just the development of technology for its own sake, it has become nihilistic. I'll tell you who put this, I think, this nihilism. And it's sad to speak against him because he was badly treated in the United States. Robert Oppenheimer. I think this sort of technological scientist, science out of control, was perfectly expressed by him when he said, when something is sweet, you have to go ahead with it. That means when you can do it, you should do it in technology. We've surely seen enough of this in the Western world from many countries, you know, where this is just craziness as a thought. I think here is a perfect example. If we give up the dear old tried and true method for generating human beings, and, and we think that we can, by technology, make the race, I think we should turn back from that before we start. I think if human sexual love is entirely cut off from generating the species, entirely cut off, I'm, you know, I'm not here talking about contraception, I'm, do you see, et cetera, et cetera, but if human sexual love is cut off from the generation of the species, I think this will be a very gate of hell. One sees very clearly, I think, in the so-called computer revolution that, that this goes beyond any attempt by the society to think what it needs or what, it, what would be desirable for it or anything. I mean, clearly we're having these machines because they're wonderful machines. Of course. It's a self-propelling dynamo. Exactly, exactly. And to stand in its way is is to say that one is against the progress of knowledge, you know, which is is, is I think begging the question because of, it's just a way of saying if anything is sweet we have to go ahead with it, but but this surely is not the case. As a teacher, Grant saw that technology had also become a dominant force in the university environment. The form it took there was the emphasis on research at the expense of teaching. By 1980, Grant was so distressed by the tendency that he resigned his post at McMaster and returned to Dalhousie, where he taught until his retirement in 1984. I thought research had taken over the proper purposes of the Department of Religion and that I had indeed failed you know, to build a, a department of religion in which I could live. Even in, you know, I think research in some areas is, you know, they're both pragmatic and theoretical reasons for doing it, and it's useful. But it, because it so dominates the university, it, it takes over those things that need to be known which cannot be known by research. Let's say that uh, people who are enormous experts in what has been done in the last hundred years in the study of the Bible, these, these kind of people 
are necessary. But the point is to know the truth of the Gospels, do you see? And when the means become the end, as they have been in, you know, you know this, you know, they've gone over the Bible word for word, and I'm not terribly sorry about that, but they've, it has happened at a time when the truth of the Bible gets less and less important to people, and I think there's some connection between the two. And, and certainly in the study of Indian religion, I think it's great to have people round, sort of like you would have um, waitresses round, to know about the philology of Sanskrit. But the point is to try and see what is true about the Vedanta. When you say that you failed, I wonder how you mean it, because it, it seems to me you've tried to demonstrate that this is the overwhelming tendency of the modern world. Could you have succeeded? As always, one fails through laziness and lack of attention. You know, there is not only the the failing against the spirit of the age, which I think was given, but they're all the failures that all of us know. And I'm very grateful to my master. I loved some of the theoretical scientists at my master. They were splendid and wonderful people. But I was hoping I was saying no to what had become the dominant spirit in what I would call the arts faculties at the universities. You know, obviously, the spirit of modern science is going to to be triumphant in in the parts of the universities that are concerned with that. But I was hoping I could say something, a no, to this spirit's entry and, into the arts faculties at the universities. I don't know whether I did or not. How does one ever know anything of that kind? But you did it at cost to yourself. Yes, I just couldn't. It didn't cost to myself. I just couldn't be bothered to be in this arts faculty anymore, do you see? That, that uh, you know, I don't want to make it sound as if I did it in a great... I did resign from York on a big matter of principle years before. But in the case of McMaster, it was I just couldn't be bothered to spend the last five years of my life in this arts faculty, and particularly in this department of religion, which I thought had just become a home for the stupidest kind of technology. So it was in a kind of way, a kind of act of impatience, which may be good or bad, I don't know. I don't want to build it up in any way. It was just an act of impatience with what the arts faculty had become at McMaster. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the second program in a three-part intellectual biography of Canadian philosopher George Grant. These three programs on the ideas of George Grant are written and presented by David Cayley, with production by Damiano Pietropaolo, production assistant Alison Moss, archival research by Ken Pewley, technical operations Lorne Tulk. The three programs in this series will be available as printed transcripts for $5. 
You can get them by sending your request to George Grant, care of CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Don't forget a money order or personal check for $5, and please be prepared to wait about six weeks for delivery. There's also a reading list to accompany this series, and you can get that free, as usual, by writing to Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Join us again next week at the same time when we'll examine the influence of Christianity on George Grant's thought. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.